Well, it was a hot summer afternoon, and if you looked up beyond the trees that lined the path, you would uh, know that a storm was surely approaching. At nightfall, the menacing clouds fulfilled their threat, producing a torrential downpour. Howling winds violently twist the trees before you, and deafening peals of thunder convince you that the ground beneath you will certainly split open at any moment. Flashes of lightning sporadically interrupt the darkness, and you discern the figure of a young man darting through the rain desperately looking for cover. Suddenly, lightning strikes a tree next to this man, so close to him, in fact, that it knocks him down to the ground. In abject terror, he crawls next to a granite rock, grasps it with both hands, and cries out, Help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. The date is July 2nd, 1505, and the man is Martin Luther. Luther's father, through hard work and an entrepreneurial spirit, had risen from very modest means to become the owner of several copper mines, making him enough money to provide the young Martin with an education as a lawyer. St. Dan was considered the, pat the patron saint of miners, and since his father owned copper mines, it was to her that the young terror-stricken Martin uh, raised his desperate prayer. The good news for Martin is that the storm abated and he lived to tell the story. The bad news for his father is that his investment in his son's future legal career was entirely lost when Martin, against the will of his father and the advice of his peers, fulfilled his vow and took up vows, as it were, uh, as an Augustinian monk. Just over 12 years later, on October 31st, 1517, Luther would nail his 95 Thesis to the castle church door in Wittenberg and would soon find himself in the middle of another storm, one that would shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ on Europe, bringing with it the winds of Reformation and changing the world forever. This evening on Reformation Sunday, we're looking at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, a text that has brought great comfort to the Christians for almost 2,000 years, precisely because it shines the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ with clarity and power. So let's turn now to Revelation chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 9 to 20. Please listen to the reading of God's word. I, John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the main point uh, from this text to us this evening is this. When you find yourself in the middle of the storm, do not despair nor desist, for the, for the glorious light of your victorious Savior will pierce through the dark clouds and shine its life-giving rays upon you. Now, this point will become clear as we consider the structure of our text. We'll be looking first at the setting, verses 9 to 11, the symbols, verses 12 to 16, and the short sermon that is contained even within these verses in verses 17 to 20. So let's look first at the setting in verses 9 to 11. Here's again verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Although there is some debate, most commentators attribute the authorship of this book to John, the beloved disciple of Jesus. Verse 2 of the letter indicates that the author was an eyewitness to Christ and to his ministry. And some of the themes as well as the language of the letter resonate with John's gospel and epistles. He writes that he was on the island of Padmos, some 40 miles or so off the coast of modern-day Turkey. Pliny the Elder, the first-century Roman historian, notes that Padmos was a place of banishment for those who had fallen out of favor with the Roman government. This agrees with John's comment that he is on Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, banishment is never pleasant, much less for someone who is well advanced in years as John would have been at this point. And isn't it amazing that this old man would be willing to endure the loss of his possessions, exile to a penal colony, beatings, maybe even lashings, Hunger, exposure to the elements, sleeping on bare ground in some cave, all because of his unwavering commitment to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, he was not alone in doing this. He writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The Greek suggests that an, an inextricable link between tribulation the kingdom, and patient endurance for those who are in Jesus. They go together. You may recall Jesus' words, which John records in his gospel narrative, when he quotes Jesus saying, If the world hates you, know that it has, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. 
One wonders how often John might have recalled these words from his Lord as he endured the pain and the shame and the humiliation of Roman chains. The Apostle Peter, no stranger himself to suffering on account of Christ, writes in his first epistle, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of life's storms because of illness, or because of the loss of a loved one, or because of financial hardship. But sometimes it is faithfulness to Christ that brings the dark clouds. And we might be tempted to flee the storm by compromising our confession. Yet this text reminds us that to be in Christ, to be heirs in his kingdom, is to partner with him and with his church in tribulation and in patient endurance. John probably wrote Revelation in the last decade of the first century when Domitian was emperor of Rome. During his reign, Domitian took the title Savior and Lord for himself, and he ordered statues with his likeness to be erected in temples across his empire, demanding divine worship of his subjects. Those who bent the knee and brought him tribute were issued certificates of compliance, marks of loyalty to the Roman sovereign, a mark of the beast, if there ever was one. Without this certificate, you could not do business in Rome and would be vulnerable to all sorts of legal and illegal forms of persecution and harassment that could result in loss of employment, in loss of possessions, in physical punishment, in banishment, and yes, even in death. But faithful Christians refuse to compromise their faith, confessing Christ and not Caesar as Savior and Lord. They did this knowing all too well the cost to them and to their loved ones. One of the characteristics of apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation, is that it is written uh, to offer hope to Christians who are suffering, who are oppressed, who are ostracized and marginalized on account of their faith. Is there any wonder then that relatively wealthy, comfortable churches here in America um, rarely feel the need to read or to study this book as a source of encouragement and perseverance for today. Perhaps as the complexity of the vision steeped in Old Testament imagery and symbolism which deters our study and devotion of this book. But, perha but perhaps it's our perceived friendship with the world which causes us to conceive of the book of Revelation as nothing more than a curious uh, and stimulating puzzle to solve instead of an encouraging picture of hope. Well, any Christian who is paying attention to the winds of culture these days ought to realize that ominous clouds are forming above our churches and that we now live in the shadow of a gathering storm. How good and comforting it is to know that God has not only appointed the times in which we are to live, but that he has also amply provided for our salvation through his living and abiding word. In verses 10 and 11, John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira 
and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Notice that John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day when he receives the vision. John may be exiled, he may be beaten, he may be hungry, he may be alone, but in the Spirit on the Lord's day he meets with Christ, or rather, Christ meets with him. What gentle care from our Good Shepherd, who each week provides for us a day of rest from our worldly labors, that he might restore us with his care, revive us with his word, refresh us with his table, renew us by his spirit, and cause us to rejoice in his presence and in the company of his saints. And how he lavishes us with steadfast love. His faithful servant John is in exile, literally surrounded by water, and under the vigilant custody of the greatest military force on earth. Yet Christ rends the heavens to meet with him there and to give him a message that would strengthen and encourage him in his faith and strengthen and encourage his people for thousands of years to come, even to this very day. Notice in verse 10 that John describes the voice he heard as being like a loud trumpet. This is reminiscent of Exodus 19 where God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai and God's voice is preceded by the sound of a trumpet. On that occasion, Moses received from God the Ten Commandments, the marching orders of God's kingdom as God's people were called to do battle with the forces of hell and conquer the promised land. Now the heavenly trumpet's bellicose accent is heard once more heralding the imminent arrival of Israel's champion and calling us to follow our commander as he storms the gates of hell. The outward appearance of the Christian circumstances may at times seem dark and bleak, but when the heavens open and the trumpet sounds, the light of truth shines and reveals a reality heretofore hidden, demonstrating that things are not as they seem. In verse 11, the voice tells John to write down what he sees and to send it to the seven churches. Though the churches mentioned are seven historical churches, in the Bible, the number seven, of course, represents fullness and perfection and completion. The seven churches listed here represent the fullness of God's people across space and time. They represent the universal church. They represent that church that we confess in the creed, that one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So the message to these churches is also a message to every church and is relevant always and everywhere. This is the setting of our text, a text that spoke to John, that spoke to the seven churches, and that speaks to you today. Let us now look at the symbols that this vision employs. In verse 12 we read, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In our materialistic world, we often conceive of reality as being restricted to the physical domain, the material world. This is why when our physical circumstances are challenging, we often feel like we have no valid recourse to fend off fear or to defend against despair. But the Bible tells us that the spiritual domain is just as real, if not more, than the physical domain. And the book of Revelation uses powerful and even shocking images to communicate the reality of our spiritual circumstances, that we might be spurred toward faithfulness and toward patient endurance. Being in the spirit, 
John receives from the spirit of wisdom and revelation insight into a reality that is inaccessible to our senses without divine mediation. And as he turns toward the direction of the voice, he observes seven golden lampstands. John would have immediately connected the imagery with the golden lampstand uh, in Hebrew menorah uh, that, that was kept in the holy place in the tabernacle, close to the place that represented God's earthly presence among his people. And without any need for interpretation, John would have known that the lampstand represented God's people. In fact, one of the identifying markers of Jewish archaeological sites of antiquity is the presence of carved menorahs, carved lampstands, in the ruins. But to dispel any doubt in the matter, in verse 20, we learn that the seven lampstands of the vision do in fact represent the seven churches. This is a startling picture. One lampstand represented Israel, but now there are seven lampstands signifying all of God's people, not limited to any one ethnicity or race or time period or geographical location. They represent all of God's people throughout history and throughout the earth. That is to say, every Christian here today forms part of the vision that John receives on Patmos. In verse 13 we read, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Emerging from among the lampstands is one like a son of man, undoubtedly alluding to Daniel chapter 7 in which the exiled prophet has a vision of one like a son of man, emerging from the clouds and receiving from God an everlasting dominion over all peoples, and receiving also a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. On the island of Patmos, John has a vision of the conquering Messiah, promised of God to his people, to be sure an encouraging sight to this beleaguered prisoner of Rome. But do not miss the fact that John recognizes the connection of this figure of the Son of Man in Daniel. The vision itself does not, at first glance, present him as a mighty king on his throne, scepter in hand, nor as a warrior waging, uh, uh, a warrior waging war uh, against his enemies. That's not primarily the way that this vision is presented to John. No, the very first impression of this son of man is that of a priest ministering to his people. Whenever you're hurting, your most pressing felt need is not necessarily a change in your circumstances. That's often an impossibility. What you need most is the tender care of someone's presence. And that is exactly what Christ first provides. The long robe and the golden sash describes the high priest's attire. Described first in Exodus 28. The first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus confirms in his writings that the high priest wore a golden sash about his chest during this time. And of course, in keeping with the imagery of the lampstand, which was found in the tabernacle, now the Son of Man appears dressed in the attire of the high priest. It was the priest's duty to tend to the lampstand in the tabernacle, and Professor G.K. Beale points out that the Old Testament priest would trim the lamps, would remove the wick and old oil, refill the lamps with fresh oil, and relight those that had gone out. This was part of the duty of the priest in the Old Testament. That is to say, not only is the lampstand not a source of light in itself, 
It's not the source. Rather, it upholds the source. But it also is not self-sustaining, but requires the care and attention of the priest. So to the church of Jesus Christ, as represented by the seven lampstands, requires and indeed receives the permanent care of her high priest and her Lord. Even when the church is weak and threatened and persecuted and reviled and in chains, our high priest walks in our midst, tends to our needs, and restores our wounds that we might shine the, that we might shine the light that has been entrusted to us. And what light is this? It is the light of Christ and of his gospel. The moment a church stops being a lampstand in God's holy temple, a bearer of the pure and resplendent light of his glory, but decides to display another light, perhaps a warmer light, or a light bent through a prism of our own making and displayed in a rainbow of colors, that very moment, the high priest will remove that lampstand from his presence, for that church has forgotten her first love. As the letter of the church to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 makes clear. Some envision a Christ who is so transcendent that he is uninterested, or at best, inaccessible to his people. Others proclaim a Christ that is so imminent that he is consumed by the goal of serving and pleasing us, working to ensure that we live happy and comfortable lives. But the vision that John receives is that of a high priest who identifies with us in our suffering, who cares and comforts us with his presence, who equips us to be his light, bearers of that light to this dark world, even as he calls us toward faithful and patient endurance. In other words, here is a vision of Christ as he really is, as the one who comforts the faithful and who commissions us to confront sin and to conquer darkness with his light. In verse 14, John zeroes in on the appearance of this high priest as he writes, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Astonishingly, John's description of the Son of Man is almost identical to the way that Daniel describes the Ancient of Days, God, that is to say, God himself, in Daniel 7, verse 9. The high priest who walks among his people and cares for them and sustains them and equips them is not just a messianic figure, but is a divine being. The white hair represents wisdom and dignity and purity, and the flaming eyes represent an unhindered vision that is able to perfectly discern reality, to know and perceive the things that, as, as they are. If the Son of Man's attire brought to mind Christ's office of priest, the vision now brings to mind Christ's office of prophet, particularly when one considers the way the author of Hebrews describes the attributes of the Word of God when he writes, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Just as the prophet 
as, as the prophets of the Old Testament, um, use God's revelatory word to condemn the sinful attitudes and behavior of God's people and to call them to repentance, so too the Son of Man, God's revelation made flesh, shall sit in perfect judgment on that terrible day. Let us cast ourselves upon Christ now, even as our hearts are exposed before him, instead of unrepentantly waiting for that day when those who persist in obstinate rebellion will long to be hidden underneath rocks rather than face the penetrating vision of that perfect judge. In verse 15 we read, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. The feet being like burnished bronze refined in a furnace represent moral purity and patient endurance. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's survival of the fiery furnace in Daniel 3. But they especially represent the righteous and powerful trampling underfoot of all of his enemies. On the island of Padmos, John would constantly hear the sound of the waves breaking upon the island's rocky shore. But now, through the Spirit's mediation, the roar of many waters turns out to be the voice of God himself. For that is exactly how Ezekiel describes God's voice in Ezekiel 43 too. As, he's, as, as the vision of God presents to himself, he hears the sound of many waters there. Here the picture of the Son of Man is that of a divine king who has conquered his enemies and sits upon his throne. Before this king, the roar of many waters will either become for you a river of eternal life, if you have been buried and raised with Christ in the waters of baptism, or they will engulf and overwhelm you as that flood of judgment fell upon those outside of God's ark. In the midst of suffering and tribulation, our impression may be that we are alone, but this vision says otherwise. Our prophet, our priest, and our king is walking with us and ministering to us in our time of need. Finally, in verse 16 we read, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. In verse 20, we learn that the seven stars in his hand are the, the angels of the seven churches. Now, the word angel means messenger. And although there are several possible meanings to this vision, I believe the angels of the churches probably represent the church's pastors, since they are the messengers who bring God's word to them. The point is that those in position of leadership in God's church, and especially those uh, assigned the task of mini the ministry of the word, feel the, in particular the burden, the weight of that call. But they themselves are sustained and protected by Christ, being as they are in his right hand. The sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth is, of course, God's word, even as Paul in Ephesians 6.17 encourages Christians to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, he says. In Isaiah 11.4, the prophet writes that Messiah shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The reason why the faithful preaching of God's word is opposed is because it is God's weapon of choice in triumphing over the forces of evil and bringing to subjection all of his and all of our enemies. One edge of this two-edged sword has the power to slay those who oppose him, and the other edge 
has the power to cause dead hearts to come to life. John tells us that the face of the Son of Man was like the sun shining in full strength. John has perhaps saved the most interesting detail until the end. You may recall that together with Peter and James, John was one of the three disciples that that witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. And when they beheld Jesus' face, they saw that it was shining like the sun. Same description that we find here. The glory and unclouded power of this being is before him, and it is no other than his beloved teacher, his Lord, his Savior, Jesus Christ. One day each and every one of us shall behold his countenance. On that day, how will you react? Will you respond with unmitigated joy, or will you respond in abject terror? Let us not neglect such a great salvation as the one that is displayed before us now. Having considered the setting and the symbols, let us now move to our final and much shorter point, the sermon. John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and it is the Lord himself who begins to preach on that day of worship. In the first part of verse 17, we read, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. Rick Phillips notes that, the most important, more, that more important than how John fell is where he fell. Namely, he fell at Christ's feet. John knew Jesus better than most people did during his earthly ministry, ministry didn't he? And yet, the more one knows Jesus, the one more walks with Jesus, the more one realizes how unworthy we are of his love and how utterly dependent we are on his mercy and his grace. One might hear echoes here of Luke 7, where the sinful woman falls at Jesus' feet, kissing his feet and wiping his feet with her tears and with her hair. Jesus says that he who knows he has forgiven much, loves much. None of us are worthy of the redemption that Christ so freely and so fully has provided us. Are you dying to self that you might allow Christ to live in you? Are you living at the feet of Christ with grateful hearts for the grace that he has lavished on you and in humble reliance upon him? Perhaps subjecting yourself to him in this way is far too terrifying a prospect. Perhaps you are paralyzed by the idea of giving yourself over to his lordship in this way. Or perhaps your faithfulness to Christ has been so costly to you and to your family that you are scared to consider what the future holds. Christ begins his sermon by placing his hand on John and saying, fear not. And why should you not fear? That he explains in the rest of verses 17 and 18 where he says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the most astonishing and most powerful part of John's vision of chapter 1. The risen Christ says, fear not, because I am the first and the last. The first and the last is a title that God gives himself in Isaiah, in chapter 41, in chapter 44, and in chapter 48. He says, I am the first and the last. 
So the first reason Christians should not fear is that their Lord is God in the flesh. He doubles down on this declaration when he says, I am the living one. This is another way of saying he is life and that he alone possesses immortality. One might hear echoes of God's revealed name to Moses in Exodus 3, where he tells him, I am who I am. And in his gospel account, John describes Jesus by writing, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus' bold assertion of divinity ought to be the basis for our confidence in all circumstances. In verse 19, Jesus will instruct John to write everything uh, that will be revealed to him in a book. And in verse 20, he explains the significance of the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, which I have already mentioned. But Jesus really concludes his sermon here in verse 18 when he states, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. As creator, Jesus has the keys to, our, to the physical realm and to the spiritual realm. Jesus is Lord over all reality, not just over what our eyes can see, and that's very good news for us. As Redeemer, Jesus has the keys over death and over its grip over us. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has made death nothing more than the Christian's gateway to eternal life. The gates of Hades will not prevail over us because Jesus is the owner of the keys. Therefore, regardless of circumstances, even if you are in the middle of a storm, surrounded by dark and menacing clouds, you can say with Paul, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the reason we can say amen to these words from Paul is not only because the light of Christ shone on Patmos on the Lord's day, it's also because the light of the Reformation shone on the doctrines of justification by faith alone and on the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. At the beginning of the 16th century, the motto of the city of Geneva was post tenebras spero lucem, meaning after darkness, I hope in light. This was taken from the Vulgate version of Job 17, 12. After darkness, I hope in light. Well, in May 1536, after the winds of the Reformation blew through Geneva, the city council voted to follow the teachings of the Reformation and took powers away from the Roman Catholic bishop. One of the city's first decisions was to change the motto of the city from post tenebras spero lucem to post tenebras lux, meaning after darkness, light. They proceeded to mint coins with this new motto. And in a matter of months... John Calvin would begin his ministry there, which would eventually become a beacon of light, shining the gospel of God's grace and making post-tenebras lux, after darkness light, the Reformation's battle cry. May the light continue to shine bright from our pulpits and in the deepest recesses of our hearts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though we were a people who dwelt in darkness, we have seen a great light. 
we thank you for the light of Jesus Christ, that light that shone on Padmos on that Lord's Day, and that light that continues to shine from our pulpits every Lord's Day. Father, we thank you for your provision to us. We thank you for the, your provision of your word. We thank you especially for your provision of your spirit. And we thank you, Father, for the tender care that you provide for the church, allowing us, equipping us even, to be lampstands for the light of the gospel. Help us to do that faithfully. Help us to resist temptation. Help us to patiently endure. For you do ask these things and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.